Joshua 23, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua, Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done this day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dan. So we did lose a lamp on this screen. We, we're working on it. And I guess if we lose that one, we're going to face the back wall and sing at the end of the service. So we're almost done with Joshua. Lord willing, we have, next week will be our last week in Joshua. We're then uh, Labor Day weekend going to take uh, a little excursus over to Revelation for one week. And then September 8th, we're going to start a series that I'm excited about uh, on our five core values. We, uh, we've put together, we've worked very hard over the past uh, year to develop our core values. And so this is going to be a season where we really get to talk about where it is that we are as a church, uh, where do we sense God leading us as a church. So I hope that it's both informative and encouraging. Um, it would be a good week to invite a friend if you want. That would give them a good picture of what we're doing here. Today, though, we are in Joshua 23, where we're reminded once again that Joshua is old. <laughs> there, uh, probably about 20 years has passed between chapter 22 and now chapter 23. Joshua is well over 100 years old at this point, uh, and he calls all of Israel together to give what really can only be called a farewell speech. I mean, these aren't his last actual words, but this is a farewell speech where he is giving Israel a type of marching orders. So what is he saying in this farewell speech? I mean, of all the things, you know, that Joshua would, would have to say to his people, what does he say in this chapter? He says, stay focused, stay the course. Do not let this season of peace and prosperity divert you from what it is that we're called to do. Keep your eyes and your hearts fixed on God. That's what this, this passage is about. And so I was thinking this week, like what makes a good farewell speech? I don't know that I've ever given a farewell speech. Um, I, so I Googled like marks of a good farewell speech. And there's a lot out there. If you ever have to give a farewell speech, there's a lot on Google. And there are a lot of strong opinions on what makes a good farewell speech. But the more I started looking at it, when you have a believer like Joshua giving a farewell speech, it really is very similar in its dynamic to a sermon. 
And that's basically what's going on here. And so I started thinking about, you know, what do I like to listen to in a sermon? I don't, I don't get on a Sundays, to, you know, to listen to sermons the way that most of you do. So during the week, I have some pastors that I enjoy listening to that encourage me. And I was thinking, you know, back in the day, um, I would listen to certain pastors or preachers primarily because they were funny, you know, or primarily because I was going to learn some deep theological truth that I didn't know before. So basically, if you could make me laugh and use the word infralapsarian, you had me. But the kind, thanks for that. But the kind of sermon that I find myself wanting to listen to today has slightly changed. I don't think there's anything wrong with being funny or being uh, deeply theological. But as I get older and have more people in my life to care about, I see more fears creeping in. You know, I, I, regularly, I feel like I'm not doing enough for my wife. I'm regularly screwing up my kids. I feel like I can always do more uh, for the church, whether it's spend time with people, spend time on the sermon, spend time in prayer. And so when I get a chance to step back and listen to a sermon, what I want is a sermon that's helpful. And, and great if it's delivered by a smart person or a funny person, but I want a sermon that is going to take the deep truths of God and, and minister to parts of my soul that need it the most. And as I've gotten to sit in Joshua's farewell message this week and think about what those Israelites might have been thinking about and dealing with at that moment, this is the kind of message that I wanna listen to. This is the kind of sermon that I wanna listen to. And so Joshua, when he says, stay focused, stay the course he does this fundamentally by saying three things he tells his people first to steward what you've seen then secondly he tells them to stay faithful to what you were commanded and then lastly to keep your eyes on what's ahead that's how this chapter breaks down so that's how we're going to walk through it so first steward what you have seen this is verses one through five so imagine all the who's who of israel coming together they're a little older, a little maybe more battle-torn at this point, but they've all come together. So you have Rahab and Caleb and Phinehas. You have the tribes on the other side of the Jordan that maybe you even haven't even seen the last 20 years. So it's kind of Israel's version of Iron Man's funeral, I think. <laughs> Only, albeit without Spider-Man now, but I digress. All right, so they're gathering, and they, everybody comes around, all of Israel, and Joshua says this. I am now old and well advanced in years and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Did you hear that? You have seen. That's what Joshua is saying. You have seen something. You have seen and experienced something that is so special. You now have a responsibility to steward the thing that you've seen. So what is it that Israel has seen? Verse 4 says that they have seen victories in these cities. They have seen the, the capture and the allotment of the land. And then they've seen the settlement of this land that they've inhabited these past 20 years. And we know from walking through Joshua that they have also seen the, the Jordan River dry up. The walls of Jericho fall down. They've seen nature fight for them. They've seen some amazing things. The land... It is as good as theirs if they will just remember what it is that they've seen. 
But we all know if you fast forward just three chapters to Judges chapter 2, what do we see? They haven't remained faithful. They haven't remembered. There's a whole other generation that doesn't know. And I think that Joshua is beginning to see this. I think he's beginning to see the cracks in the foundation. And so I think that's why he's calling everybody together and hoping that it doesn't get worse, says, remember all the things that you've seen from the beginning up until now. So why is it that it's important that the Israelites remember everything that they've seen? I think there's three components in this passage about why they need to remember what they've seen. And the first is for their own faith, for their own faith. And it's important for us to realize that a really component, really important component of Christianity is that it's rooted in things that really happened. Really happened, not myth, not ideas, but things that really happened. All the stuff in the book of the Joshua really happened. All the stuff that we, we see in the Bible really happened, including the most important stuff. Jesus was a real person. He really came. He really was born of a virgin. He really lived a sinless life and really came back from the grave. Our faith is rooted in real things that really happened. But this knowledge, it isn't just knowledge. It's accompanied by feelings. It isn't driven by feelings, but it's accompanied by feelings. It's, it's knowledge that does something, that gut, cuts into the core of who we are and what we want. They saw something and heard something said by God that mattered, and they had a responsibility to steward this. Their faith and their faithfulness depended on it. I was thinking about this week and thinking about all the ways that our culture wants to bypass knowledge for feeling. We all, we all have a feeling we want to feel, but knowledge is typically the heavy lifting to getting there. So why not just bypass knowledge and fact and, and go right to the feeling? So we see people pursuing the feeling that we want to have by pursuing money and sex and power or security and comfort, not realizing that those things are not going to provide the feeling that we ultimately seek. And we see this happening in the church too. You know, there, there are, you know, we can go into a concert or you know, some great musical exhibition and we can think, gosh, I was really moved there. I liked what I felt. How can we bring that into the church? You know, that repetition or the lasers and the fog or whatever it is. How do we bring that and bring that feeling here? And I don't deny that it produces a feeling, but what happens when we try to bypass the knowledge and the fact and get to feeling is that we can give people the sense that the Spirit of God is doing something when He's really not. And so here's an example of that. I had, got to be really vague about this, uh, I had a couple who were friends go to a church. <laughs> And they came back from the church and they went and talked to a good friend of mine and they said, wow, it was just so evident that the Spirit of God was in that place. And my friend said, wow, that's great. I would love to hear, how did you know that the Spirit of God was present? And they said, well, because everybody's hands were raised. And I, I'm pro hands being raised. I'm not, I'm not dogging hands being raised. But my friend then had the wherewithal to ask, at what point did everybody's hand go up? And he said, well, when the worship pastor said, raise your hands. It was like, I'm pretty sure it wasn't the spirit that was present, but likely the worship pastor that you're sensing when everybody's hands went up. We have to know that our faith, it is rooted in real things that should really produce 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, an emotional response. And I think this is what we see in Romans 10, where Paul says, for I, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Or John chapter four, God is spirit and, in, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So our faith is based in real fact. You know, we, we don't wanna bypass fact for feeling, but we also don't wanna go to the other extreme and just be all knowledge, all Bible knowledge, but no, no joy, no love. We have this balance. Secondly, the other reason it's important for the Israelites to remember was for future generations. Something about the future generations depended on them remembering. And so I've already referenced Judges. Judges 2 records in the same breath as Joshua's death, this. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. So there's something about our faith that God has designed it to continue by passing it down to future generations. That is a call on the church. This is, I think, why Psalm 78 says, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So what is the problem in Judges? It isn't that there was a lack of perfect parents. It, it isn't that their family time wasn't going the way that, that it should have. The kids didn't listen well enough. It wasn't that they didn't eat enough organic food. I mean, I, I, there, there, there are problems, but it wasn't that they didn't go to the best schools. The problem is that they didn't know. And this, this Hebrew word for know, it's heavy. It's not just knowing about the facts. It's embracing and believing. They did not have this. And it's worth noting that you can faithfully try and deliver these truths to the next generation and sometimes they do not embrace it. And, and many people actually speculate that that's what's going on here. You had a generation who tried because there, there wasn't a big gap, but it didn't take. And I don't know if that's true or not. I wanna acknowledge that that's a real thing, but I also wanna say that no future generation can ever believe in a God they've never heard of. No future generation is ever going to embrace a faith that has not been modeled for them. So we have a call in this church to pass what we believe down to future generations. And you don't have to be married to do this. You don't have to have children to do this. This could be to your children, it could be your grandchildren, it could be nieces and nephews, it could be children in this church. And in the coming weeks, you're going to be hearing more about ways that we want to continue to invest in coming alongside you and investing in these future generations from birth to high school graduation. And God knows I have a lot that's <laughs> you know, invested here with all the kids I have in this church. So I'm very motivated that this church would be coming alongside everyone here who wants to invest in future generations. Thirdly, the Israelites... They're to steward what they have seen so that others might see as well. So we know that God told Abram, through you, the nations would be blessed. And we're, we're seeing this begin to happen through the course of, of this book of Joshua when people like Rahab and the Gibeonites, they come into the fold of the, the people of God. And we know, fast forward where this goes. 
It really does go to the nations. And this call to steward what we have seen so that others might also see, that comes all the way to us. So what is it that we have seen? Because I can imagine somebody just thinking, well, I, I didn't see the Jordan River dry up. <laughs> you know, I didn't see the walls of Jericho come down. What is it that I'm supposed to steward? And if you're here this morning, and unless this is your very first time ever hearing anything about the Bible taught, you have seen more than Joshua or any Israelite of that day because you have the full counsel of God. You know about the better Joshua, Jesus, who ushers in the better promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. You have experienced the Holy Spirit come in and change your heart, giving you a, a deposit, a down payment for what is promised to us in the next life. So we have, I think, an even higher stewardship, a greater responsibility, because if we remember what we have seen, then there are many in this city who can see also. So we steward what we have seen. Second, Joshua says that they must remain faithful to what God has commanded. This is verses 6 through 13. And I said this last week, but there is this noticeable shift between chapter 21 and chapter 22. The first 21 chapters, is, there's a heavy emphasis on the faithfulness of God to Israel. You see that over and over again. But in the last three chapters, there is the shift uh, towards the importance of Israel's faithfulness to God. So particularly faithfulness in what I would call love-fueled obedience. Love-fueled obedience is what they're being called to. So in what ways is God called, calling Israel to be obedient in this passage? There are two very specific ways. The first is to be obedient to the word of God in general. Look at verse six. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left hand. So you may remember this call was the exact call that God gave Joshua in chapter one. And now Joshua is expanding that call to all of Israel and to us. Stay faithful. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Which is a really big call if you think about it. <laughs> Do not turn from the right or the left. Because we live in a culture that really wants some flexibility. We live in a culture that would, would say, yeah, I like certain things in the Bible, like love your neighbor and help the poor, but there's lots of other things I just, I, I, can't, I can't hold on to. I can't embrace, I can't believe. That's straying to the right or to the left. And to be fair, I think a lot of people, they, they say they don't like things just because they don't understand the Bible. You know, they say, well, I can't follow a God who promotes genocide, slavery, and the oppression of women. Well, if somebody says that, they just don't know what the Bible says because the Bible doesn't talk about that. And if you're new, since we're walking through Joshua and the genocide issue does come up, there's an article on our website that addresses it because the Bible doesn't promote any of those things. But there are people who rightly understand what the Bible teaches in the areas of money and a sexual ethic and the exclusivity of Jesus. And they say, I just can't buy into those things. I'll hold these things, but not these things. Some of you may remember uh, Thomas Jefferson was famous for going into his Bible and cutting out all the pieces that, I mean, he had to be really kind of type A to do this, cutting out all the pieces of the Bible that he didn't agree with. That's turning to the left and the right. So why is it that it's bad for people to stray to the left or the right? 
because God has designed us and he knows the environments in which we flourish. And so he's given us a path to walk down that path that where we flourish. And if we were to stray to the right or to the left from that path, we increasingly depart from an environment in which we will thrive and flourish. So we stay the course. We do not part to the right or to the left. And I can drill down on this a lot of different ways, but I decided to go the encouraging route this morning. So what are signs that you're doing a good job of this? You know, I, I, I think we should be able to rejoice if this is going well, if you are what maybe Joshua would consider to be an obedient person in this area. And I think it would be things like you care about the Bible. You read the Bible. You find the Bible instructing the things that you think and say and do and pray. The Bible is challenging to you. You wrestle with it. You find yourself wanting to talk to other people about the Bible, whether people you can learn from or teach. Do you find the Bible drawing you closer to the presence of God? And if the answer is yes to these things, then I think you would be the kind of person that Joshua would say, well done, you are walking the right path. You're not straying to the right or to the left. But there's a more specific way that the Israelites are to be obedient, maybe even slightly controversial way. And we see it in verses seven and eight. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. So they are not to marry with the, to interact or marry these other people. And this has been a very misunderstood and misapplied passage. I had an old man once use this passage to tell me this is why white people should not date and marry black people. That's what he had been taught growing up in church. But this passage has nothing to do with race. I mean, you have Rahab who was a different race and she married in. You have Moses who married a woman of a different race. It has nothing to do with race and everything to do with the heart. Because Joshua not only knew, I think he was beginning to see the hearts of the Israelites being pulled away because of their interactions with these people around them. I've already referenced Judges a number of times. I think if we, if we learn anything from the book of Judges, it's that Israel's main threat, it wasn't external, it was internal. Joshua knew this. And there are two types of people we come to this passage that I want to talk to. First, if you're not married and you want to be, I mean, this is why the Bible calls, uh, calls us to date and marry believers. It, it has to do with our heart. This is what Paul calls being equally yoked. And if you will be obedient to that call, I don't know what your future looks like, but I can promise you that God will bless you in your waiting. And then secondly, if you are married to someone who's not a believer, I don't want you to see this passage and feel any type of shame. I wanna tell you, as long as your spouse is faithful to you, he or she is 100% the person that God has for you to be married to. And you don't know what kind of ways God might use you in the life of that person to pull that person in. I mean, this is how God says this through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. For how do you wife, how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife 
So we're called to be obedient, obedient to the word of God, obedient to the specific calls in our life. But it's important to know that that obedience, it should also have joy and love. This is why in the beginning I called it love-fueled obedience. We see this in verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. This has been a repeating pattern. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. I know plenty of people who know the Bible, who seem to be obedient to the Bible, but there's no joy in their life. There's no love in their life, at least from what you can see. And since we're in the season of nominating elders, it's worth saying that the people and deacons, the people you nominate should have both. I remember the first time I ever was a part of, a, of an elder nomination process. There was a name that, that came before the elders and by all accounts, this man knew the Bible, he was obedient to the Bible, seemed to have his family in line and he was making, his, his ma- name seemed to be making his name his way through until an older, wiser man said, I, I agree, but I just don't see joy and I don't think he's qualified. So when you look to nominate elders and deacons, look for people who are obedient to the word, who know the word, but who are marked by love. We're not going just for obedience. We're going for love-fueled obedience. When I was in college, there was a guy in my circle of friends who we would have called the Christian. He seemed to have a different, it tells you a lot about my circle of friends, the Christian. But... um, he had a different ethic. He seemed to have a different North Star than the rest of us. And then I became a Christian, and we didn't really talk a lot, but some time passed, and he finally pulled me aside, and he made it clear that he, he wanted to talk to me about something serious. I thought he was pulling me aside to kind of encourage me in, in my new path and my new faith. And he looked at me, and he said, I just want you to know how much you frustrate me. I said, really? That's not what I was expecting to hear from you. He said, you seem to have found overnight what I have worked my whole life to get. He had obedience, but there was no joy, there was no love, and he has since completely fallen away from the faith. So how is it that obedience becomes joyful? Obedience is only joyful in the context of a relationship. You can't have obedience be joyful if your relationship is just with a book. The book points to something. Obedience in the context of a relationship is what produces love. I love my wife, so I am obedient to put boundaries and limits in my life that reinforce my love and and cultivate that relationship. And as I have that obedience, then comes more love. And so in the same way, we are to be in a relationship with God. And that relationship should produce love. And that love should produce obedience. And that obedience should enhance the relationship and to produce more love. And then from more love comes more obedience. And there's this circular thing that's going on that's enhancing and cultivating the relationship. But what we have to know is there is no way to have a relationship with God outside of Jesus Christ. That's what we lack and that's what he came to do. Only through the atoning death of Jesus Christ is our relationship with God healed. And only through his Holy Spirit is there a conduit from which to receive the love of God. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can have 
a relationship with God and then our obedience can then become joyful as it cultivates the relationship that we were meant to have, that we were designed to have from the beginning. And that's what makes the Christian faith unique in all the other worldviews that are out there. And whether we have this relationship, it changes everything about what we do today and everything about what we are going to see tomorrow. So that's my last point. What lies ahead? This is verses 14, 15, and 16. We live in a very broken world. It seems like the older you get or the sicker you get, the more broken you realize this world really is. And if you're under, say, 40 and you have never been really sick, you may not feel the brokenness of the world like other people in this room do, but you will. This world is not going to give us what we want from it. And so this, this month I turned 40. And so I have all kinds of wisdom and perspective now that I didn't have back in July. <laughs> One of our pastoral interns actually said, I'm so glad I can say that my pastor is 40 now. <laughs> he said, I just feel like people are gonna take us more seriously. But whether it's the magic age of 40, whether it's just getting old, whether it's a bad diagnosis or the loss of a loved one, there will be a day when you realize this world is not gonna give you what you want. This world is broken. It is fragile. And it's clear to me that Joshua knows this. Joshua understands that he is not long for this world. (laughs) And he certainly doesn't seem to be bothered by it. Look at verse 14. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Joshua knows what lies ahead. He knows that he serves a God whose word will not fail, who will keep all the promises he makes and the covenants that he commits to. And so he knows what lies ahead. But it's also clear in this passage that there are two paths. Joshua does not mince words in this. Look at the next verse, verse 15. But just as all good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. And that's the end of his farewell speech. (laughs) Clearly, he did not take preaching lab at RTS, because we all know from seminary or if you google a farewell speech you're supposed to end on a kind of a light-hearted uplifting hopeful place but Joshua he is an old man who wants to get to the point and he is not going to mince words there are two paths and those two paths depend on a relationship on a covenant death is a doorway but for everyone it is a doorway to one of two places. Because on the other side of death, what we will all see is justice. God is a just God. And so if we do not have a covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ, then when we go to the other side of that doorway and we receive the justice that we deserve, that will not go well for any of us. 
But if we are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then when we get through that door, we we receive all the justice that Jesus should receive, which is what? All the love and acceptance and rights and privileges of the faithful one true son of God. Those are the two options. It seems super clear to Joshua and should be super clear to us. Here's the way that John Piper, I think brilliantly describes the death of a believer. He says, imagine you're, you're in a small cabin in the woods and death is the doorway and you inch closer and closer to that doorway. And when you finally get to that doorway and it opens, there is a ravenous wolf with sharp claws and fangs waiting for you at that door. And so immediately you're scared, but then the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and behind that wolf, you see Jesus looking at you and smiling and holding his hand out to you. And then you realize in Jesus' other hand, is a chain that goes to a collar around that dog's neck. And so your time comes, your foot goes onto the threshold of that door and that wolf leaps at you. But with one jerk, Jesus pulls that wolf away and welcomes you into the presence of your Lord forever. That doorway is coming for all of us. And the question we need to ask is, is it armed or not? Is there a wolf that waits to get us or not? What message does your heart want to hear? What message does your heart need to hear? Because when I look at this this message, even though it's pretty heavy at the end, this is the message my heart needs to hear. And I think this is the message that all of us need to hear. We need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. We need to stay the course. And as our eyes are focused, so there will our heart be. And we will know that this world will not give us what we want what we truly want, that will only happen in Jesus Christ as we walk faithfully with him through that door into the next world. That's the message we need. That is the message that is going to connect with the lonely, the depressed, the anxious, the oppressed, wherever we are, that's the only message of hope that will really heal us. So I'm thankful that Joshua did call everybody together and deliver that message. Let's pray. God, we thank you just for people like Joshua in the Bible who faithfully served you, who enjoyed your grace and our pillars for us to look to and see what it looks like to focus on you, to follow you all the way to the end. And I pray that we would have the same confidence in you that Joshua does, that we would have the same confidence approaching death that Joshua does. And God, we know that can only come through the miracle of your opening our eyes and drawing us to you. So we pray that you would do that and that we would respond, that all of us would be more encouraged as we leave this room as a sent church to stay focused on you and that we have the great privilege of telling others about you, building your kingdom and seeing you glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.